Seamus, this conversation, which we're calling The Isle is Full of Noises, is, of course, a taster for tomorrow's conference on writing for the radio. And as a poet, I suppose, you're always writing for the radio in a way because you're always writing for sound. And uh, poems are meant to be heard, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But do you think we could start by talking about your first memories of the radio and the radio in your early life? And, of course, you would have been in what might be called double-channel land, so you would have been hearing both the BBC and RTE. What about the memories of RTE? Well, actually... It's a bit later on that I remember it. Uh, Kennedy's of Castle Ross and Donnelly's Sausages <laughs> sponsored programs. Uh, I remember that. But also, of course, from the beginning uh, in the north of Ireland, among the minority nationalist people, Michael O'Hare was a kind of a voice from a kind of cultural home for the DEA people. And uh, he was part of the Sunday sounds, actually. No doubt about that. Uh, there was a programme on RTE that, I, or it was then Radio Erin, that I remember, I think I remember, right? It was called uh, Around the Fire, I think. Uh, and there was a singer called Bill McCormick who sang on it. And I remember the, I remember the, the sounds coming down into the bedroom from the kitchen. And that, that is very much my sense of radio, is it? The comfort of it, the, overheard. Yeah. Yes, the noise is off. Yeah. What about poetry on the radio? Well, I do remember Austin Clark uh, with his voice that I didn't expect his voice to be so calm and quiet for he had a man of a certain amount of anger in him. But uh, he, he, he did a 15-minute poetry slot years and years ago. And that, when I was in my vaguely searching upwardly mobile, intellectually uh, phase, I, I tried, tried to hear Austin. Mm-hmm. And he was usually talking about canonical poetry, not uh, present-day poetry or present modern poets. I remember him talking about uh, Alexander Pope. And I know now that <laughs> he probably operated without a script. because He said, uh, well, no. Uh, We'll talk about Alexander Pope. <laughs> and and pause and a few quotations and away we go. Well, poems works that you admire in which the radio appears, because it, 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 it does appear in an awful lot of plays yeah. and poems. I'm thinking McNeese, I'm thinking Freel. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that uh, in certainly two important works of uh, literature in Ireland, the, the arrival of the wireless, as it was called, features greatly in uh, Brian Friel's Dancing at Lunasa, for example. It kind of lets the world in and lets the, lets the spirit out of the women. And uh, Louis McNeese has a poem. There's a series of poems called The Closing Album, which McNeese wrote when he was back in Ireland, travelling around just a week or two before the war was declared, and at the moment the war was declared. And the war was declared when he was in Sligo. And the poem ends up with a small box in the corner prophesying war, which is very, it's a minimal length of a line, but actually it, it gives you a sense of the transmission and the power of radio. And it's also its strangeness, its otherness for a long time. When you write a poem, 
are you constantly saying the lines out loud to yourself? Is, is that an important part of the way you compose the poem? I don't say them out loud to myself, but I weigh them on the ear somehow or other. Yeah. You hear it in your own voice inwardly. If it doesn't sound right to you, you know, you don't, when you speak it out, you can't hear it in an odd sort of way. Yeah, that's, that's the next phase, isn't it? That's the finished yeah. phase. Well, I know that, Mary, I know your wife has spoken about the moment when you're driving along in the car where suddenly she notices you with your fingers on the wheel counting out <laughs> yes, the right. meter of a poem and she knows what's going on. Yeah, well, that's uh, scanning it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but even when you get to the stage, maybe, where you give the poem the first public performance, are there times after that first public performance where you go back and you think, you know... I tripped a bit over that line, or that line didn't quite run the way I had expected it to, and where you fiddle with it. Well, it's not so much a line, to tell you the truth. I, I, I would inclined to drop a chunk, yeah. <laughs> for reading aloud, that is. I mean, there was one thing I changed uh, because of the sound of it, and this changing, the, changing it for sound meant that I was making an actual error. Uh, it's a poem called The Tolerant Man, and it's about this body in a museum in Denmark. And uh, the museum is in Silkeborg, uh, Silkville. So the first line was, to begin with, someday I will go to Silkeborg. <laughs> so I thought that was a bit, a bit essay, and uh, so I changed it to the nearest museum, uh, which is also a great archaeological museum in, in Jutland. Someday I will go to Aarhus, I said. I remember Michael Longley saying, yes, there's always room at Aarhus. <laughs> <laughs> but very often, you know, you'll quote ordinary people in a poem. Is there a natural rhythm to the way ordinary people speak, the normal intercourse conversationally between people that you look for? Yeah, well, I don't think... Maybe a dramatist pays more attention, you know. Mm. I mean... There's actually a, a hullabaloo at the minute. If there can be a poetry hullabaloo, it's more a kind of chirp. <laughs> but, but in England, uh, the professor of poetry, Geoffrey Hill, who is a kind of stern and majestic writer, has accused the poet laureate, uh, Caroline Duffy, Caroline, yeah. of uh, writing Mills and Boone type poetry. <laughs> you don't expect poets really to be Pardon? nasty to one another but obviously it happens well it was unexpected it has to be said yeah. Geoffrey Hill is now professor of poetry at Oxford and uh, I suspect he was giving his inaugural lecture maybe and uh, laying down the law his, his lecture was called poetry policing and uh, public order Poetry policing. <laughs> so you see where that's coming from. <laughs> There's some writing that isn't for the radio and isn't for the ear, and I'm talking particularly about academic yeah. writing, um, the sort of stuff that put me off English Lit at UCD all those years ago. And you've referred to this as writing in the head rather than writing in the body, which is what you regard poetry as being. See, all your former quotes are coming back to haunt you here, Seamus. Um, but does that mean that a lot of the time when you're writing, you turn off your head, that the process comes very much more from 
the subconscious than from the conscious. I wouldn't so much turn off my head as try to get out of it, so to speak. I mean, the, the best moments in a writer's life are when you get so absorbed in the thing that you forget. So there's a kind of self-forgetfulness, but there's a, a, an alive direction to the thing in hand. And I think of all things for a writer, the most important is concentration. And it's a, a difficult thing to re- maintain concentration. And sometimes you're wondering, are you, are you just daydreaming or are you just, or are you concentrating? That's especially true, I think, if, if you have one of those screens in front of you because you can, well, I actually can fall asleep opposite a screen if, given, given enough time and exhaustion. Is it important just to sit there anyway for the given two, three hours, even if the concentration doesn't seem to be coming, uh, rather than getting up and tidying that shelf and doing that job in the garden? You know, is, is, is the sitting there part of the discipline and waiting? Well, there's no doubt about it. Sitting still and waiting is the, is the way to write. But the way I have always written has been in bouts <laughs> you know, over uh, six or seven weeks being busy with it. And, uh, and there was times, luckily, I kind of pounce on it, you know. And one of the... If you get too uptight worrying about it, I mean, it, it, it doesn't really work. The best conditions are a mixture of uh, nonchalance and eagerness, you know, uh, if you could manage them, both of them. Uh, yeah. But is it a matter sometimes of just having to sit and, and wait that it will come to you? I'm waiting all the time, yes. <laughs> and it does come to you? It comes, yes, if you wait long enough, yeah. 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 But I have to say that almost every lyric poet's panic is after you write one, you think this is the last one that will ever come out, you know. Uh, you're, you're just waiting for the next one. Have, have you always felt that? Yeah, always. Still do. Even still? Yeah, yeah. That this might have been the last one? Yeah. Well, at least, you know, hope to God there's another one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talking about poems that are comprehensible, understandable... Um, I mean, as a broadcaster, I feel that the power of the spoken word and the broadcast word is, is, is so intense that it's an awful shame to make it difficult for people to understand. Okay, one doesn't want to simplify to the stage where, you know, it's ridiculous, but why be deliberately obscure? Um, as a poet, does it matter to you that people understand what you're saying or is there that fine line always between the mystery that has to be in a poem yeah. and obscurity? Well, I think if you set out to be obscure, that's crazy and it's wrong and there's no time for that. I mean, I don't think anybody does, though. I mean, many people mistake their genius for, you know, for clarity when it's actually obscurity. On the other hand, there, there's, a po- there's a poetry of a sort that is necessarily complicated because of the the poet and the subject and the attitude to composition. I mean, Dylan Thomas was a classic example in my student days. 
there, there were the poems which were absolutely available, especially when read by Thomas, who was a great argument for the poem read aloud, the way Dylan Thomas did it. But uh, the other thing is that, that Thomas had these very obscure, very compacted poems that, were, that you, you really, if I started to read them here, there wouldn't be much uh, understanding. On the other hand, I think he needed to do that, and there was a kind of art pleasure in it for him. And uh, I think that there are certain poems that you write that are, that are direct, and because maybe of the nature of the rhythm or the meter, they walk to the end of the pews. They go to the back of the room. I mean, if I'm choosing to read poems at a poetry reading, I try to pick poems that will walk out there. And then there are poems that stay in here. And uh, they might be more obscure or more mysterious. But that's, that's part of it, isn't it? I mean, if, if you're going to banish mystery... <laughs> yeah, I've had it. If poetry is to be so obscure that your ordinary amateur, like myself, um, says, actually, I, I don't know what's going on in here, and I've tried really hard, and I still don't know what's going on in here. If poetry is moving more and more and more to a tinier and a tinier audience and excluding all of us, the great unwashed. Isn't that bad news for poetry? Well, I don't think that... Uh, I don't think it's as bad as that. <laughs> uh, but I would have to say that, that, that these works have their own necessities to follow. And, I mean, if, if you take an analogy with music or art, or, I mean, painting. People could go into a gallery to a certain kind of work and say, that's, I don't have a clue about that. What? And they accept it from painting, you know. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the, the artist has triumphed, but there is an integrity to, to the thing that has to be respected. And I think, actually, nowadays, there is a lot of democratization of poetry in the Poetry slams. I've never been, anybody been ever been at a poetry slam here. Oh, very good. <laughs> I, I must go sometime. <laughs> Is that where people just get up and? I think they get read. up and to an open mic yeah. for poetry. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, said he wanted to go to a pub, but I think I should go to a, <laughs> go to a poetry slam. <laughs> a poetry slam. <laughs> um, can we talk about? The, the accent in which one writes, just keeping still to the theme of the, the spoken word. Louis McNeese is a great favourite of mine, and the first time I heard him speak, the first recording that I heard of him, shocked me, because wrongly, I suppose, I had attributed to him a northern accent, and I had expected that lines from a poem like Entirely would go, you know, if I could get the hang of it entirely. Um, and when I heard this clipped upper-class voice, it, it almost sounded a feat to me, and it lost yeah. to me some of the wonderful music of the poems. On the other hand, you're a superb reader of your own poetry, and your accent is a bit like yeast. I mean, the words rise and they, they fill out, and you, particularly words like omphalos and tomb and, you know um, do you consciously write the way you speak as 
an Ulster man with, with a bit of the Ulster Scots. Yeah. I don't set out to, when I sit down saying, now we're going to have a bit of Ulster speak, you know. <laughs> but inevitably. It's there, though. It's there. <laughs> it is there, yeah. yeah. Inevitably. The cadencing, I think, is there. And, I mean, I'm, as you say, I'm kind of happy with certain lumps of the language, of the words, of the vocabulary. In fact, a lot of the vocabulary, not a lot, but a certain amount of vocabulary that I've used, only years later, I, I'm, somebody asked me, what does that word mean? And I look, I tell them, and then I look it up in the dictionary, and it's not in the dictionary. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, <laughs> the word plout, plout of rain, I don't know whether that's uh, common in Ireland or not, but uh, no. No, I've, I've heard it, yeah. but then I'm a culture. <laughs> um, I mean, say, take a poem like um, Senior Infants and your friend who was at school with you when you were a little fella coming across the road waving a stick and saying, do you mind the Sally Rod? <laughs> Meaning, do you remember? That's right. Undoubtedly, here and there when dialogue intervenes, yeah. the Ulster speak comes out. But, you know, the first time that I heard a poem of my own on radio... Uh, BBC third programme it was produced by a poet called George Macbeth and the, the poem was called Death of a Naturalist about frogs among other things the, the, the producer decided I suppose that this was a very exotic thing coming from the north of Ireland and um, the, the reader who, who we chose to do it on, on the programme was actually an African a native African, with an African voice. So it gave it a powerful presence, all right, on the air. But I was curious why he chose it. And the older I get, the more I realize it was the exoticism of frogs and frog spawn and flax dams and all and, that. And, yeah. and you being from the north, an and exotic the, creature as well. I, I, you know, yeah. That's right. I'm going to ask you to read one of the poems from North. North, Seamus, is my favorite book of all the favourite books I have and the reason perhaps is that it has been called in some ways your most journalistic uh, in terms of its style now you see I think that's good I think that's real good that it's journalistic um, but the reason was it came out at a time when I was working in the north and it caught all the phrases that I was hearing around me every day and the sense of frustration that people had as to how to make sense of this and, and what was happening and you, you catch a lot of it um, yeah. yeah, this was uh, written 1971. Murray and myself had been in California for a year at the University of California in Berkeley, and we came back, and uh, there was a lot of um, a lot of writing going on. Michael Longley was writing epistles to various people, one to me, one to Jimmy Simmons, etc. And uh, so what I did, I, I, I started to write epistles to people in Berkeley back to them, to Tom Flanagan who was a scholar there to a family called the Keefes and then I wrote a couple to local people they were all rumbustious, not setting out to be great poetry but flailing along and uh, then Carol Miller who was the editor of The Listener at that time, they ran a weekly thing called Views so he asked me for views on Northern Ireland at that time, which was a hectic time. 
And I took these letters I had written to various people in verse and, you know, beheaded them and took the feet off them and put them all together. So this was one piece of the views on Northern Ireland in 1971. Religions never mentioned here, of course. You know them by their eyes and hold your tongue. One side's as bad as the other, never worse. Christ, it's near time that some small leak was sprung in the great dikes the Dutchman made, Dutchman being William of Orange, the great dikes the Dutchman made to dam the dangerous tide that followed Seamus, King James. Yet for all the art and sedentary trade, I am incapable. The famous northern reticence, the tight gag of place and times, yes, yes, of the wee six I sing, where to be saved you only must save face, and whatever you say, you say nothing. Smoke signals are loud-mouthed compared with us. Maneuverings to find out name and school, subtle discrimination by addresses, with hardly an exception to the rule that Norman, Ken, and Sydney signal prod, and Seamus, call me Sean, our surefire pape. O oh, land of password, hand grip, wink and nod, of open minds as open as a trap, where tongues lie coiled as under flames lie wicks, where half of us, as in a wooden horse, were cabined and confined like wily Greeks, besieged within the siege, whispering Morse. <laughs> And that, of course, was whatever you say, say nothing from North. And those poems mattered to me because they reflected the life that I was living, the conversations that I was hearing all the time. But was it also a form of detoxification for you? I mean, in a way, were those the circular conversations that you were trying to get away from when you, when you came south? Uh, I came south. As a, I didn't flee the troubles. You know, I'm never tired of saying this. The, the fact is that when we came back from uh, the States, it was the first time that I felt free. Before that, everything had been conveyor belt, and a nice conveyor belt, scholarship to university, uh, university degree, degree to teaching, teaching in a school to lecturing in a teacher training college in Belfast, and then from lecturing to Queen's University. So it was a kind of academic upwardly, upward mobility, as I was saying, all along. At the same time, I was publishing poems. I'd, I published two books that were very well received, and uh, I was called a poet and all that. But I didn't feel I had actually earned it somewhere in myself, so when we came back, Murray and I used to drive around in the early summer, or late, late 71, early 72, and we were driving around looking for a house where we might move out of Belfast and live and uh, write freelance. Because when I left Berkeley, the chairman said, if you ever want to come back, you can come back. So there were a few shillings then were always, there's a little insurance for the kind of, financial side of things. So we were looking for a house in the north, County Antrim, County Down, County Tyrone, County Derry, driving about. 
And then we got this letter from Anne Saddlemeyer in Toronto, who said, I've got this house in Wicklow, Gate Lodge. And uh, we went down at Easter, we stayed two weeks, and we went there. But of course, once we got there, you're quite right, there was a sense that you were out of it a bit. And you began to think about things, but you were free to think about them in a different way, you know? Yeah. Uh, those, those ones were, were written in the place. But I think the, the rest of North was more meditative, and it was written in Wicklow, yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, talking about Wicklow, that lovely poem, Exposure, at the yeah. end of, of, of North, yeah. where you talk about being neither an internee nor an informer, and you talk about have missed the once-in-a-lifetime portent, oh, the comet's pulsing rose. Did, did that last for a long time, that feeling of, should I be here, should I be there? Uh, no, I never felt I should be there, to tell you the truth. I mean, I felt uh, the move... The move was absolutely right. There's no question about that. The poem is a poem, and it's a way of symbolizing a condition. And the pulsing rose is a kind of Dantesque, large, cosmic uh, image. An image of total fulfillment, you know, and maybe, in this case, total engagement. The poet who's fit for everything. But the situation there... I say, it was a winter scene blowing up these meagre sparks. I said, my poetry isn't an effulgent divine comedy. You know, it's uh, a few sparks blown up. Of course, false modesty <laughs> entering in in a way too. Yeah. Well, being published by Faber, maybe the sparks weren't that meagre really, were they? Uh, yeah. Well, that's partly why I thought I had to, had to earn my keep, you know, earn my writerly keep because you don't want it to you don't want your worth to depend upon your publisher no, well that's true yeah. that's true <laughs> but, Even but, but it is it was a kind of an endorsement surely yeah yeah you've always made a point of describing yourself as an Irish poet I remember meeting you in Cheltenham in the 70s where you were cross because you'd been introduced as as a British poet um, but you wrote a protest poem to Penguin when they included you with other Northern Ireland poets in the Penguin Book of Contemporary British Poetry. But what I wanted to ask you, I mean, I've worked in Britain, and I've worked for the BBC, and when the British take you to their hearts, that is very, very seductive. I mean, they're, they've been colonisers for lots of reasons, but they can be charming colonisers as well. And I remember working for Newsnight and hanging on for dear life to my Irish R. And at the time, Arthur Scargill was in the news all the time, and they would always say, Arthur Scargill. And I would make a point of saying, Arthur Scargill. Um, and it was a determination to hang on, I suppose, to my identity and to, to who I was, while being sucked in to these people who approved of me and thought I was great and wanted me to stay. Did you find yourself having to resist that seduction? Uh, no, I never thought of myself resisting it. Uh, but... Uh I never thought of it as seduction either, to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, but you're right, I mean, uh, you probably, I mean, have a lot of friends, genuine friends from that time. Yeah. And I equally, since crossing the water in the late 60s into a literary milieu, I made a lot of very good friends, were still very good friends. 
In fact, the two guys who edited the book of contemporary British poetry were good friends and are good friends still. But uh, I, I would have to say that I, I enjoyed the... <laughs> The welcome, you know. And it was there. I mean, um, the time you got the Nobel Prize, I remember going through the English papers that day, and the Daily Telegraph, of all papers, had an editorial on you, and the heading on it was Justifiably Famous Seamus. And <laughs> coming from the Daily Sorry Telegraph... Sorry I missed that. <laughs> I felt that was, uh, that was an endorsement, yeah. all right. But your time at Oxford, when you were Professor of Poetry... And there was a certain element even down here of, you know, Catholic boy is, <laughs> Catholic nationalist boy is professor of poetry at Oxford. Um, did you feel at home there, as at home as you perhaps were to feel later on in Harvard? The thing that I did in Oxford to avoid a kind of ethnic chic, <laughs> I never once in, how long? Five years, 15 lectures. I never once told a joke. <laughs> <laughs> or sang a song. Or sang a song or, or made the audience laugh. <laughs> because I felt with the stereotyping, you know, the minute you do it, you're just another party. You know? So, I mean, that was a very deliberate decision. Well, I want to ask you now to read a poem, and, and it was a lovely poem that you wrote for a new niece who is half English. Yes. Uh, this poem was written quickly <laughs> because it was, it was called for quickly. We had arrived at uh, Mary's sister's house in Gloucestershire, and we'd forgotten that there was a, a new baby in the house who had just been christened. And there was no present, we had no present to give the kid. (laughs) (laughs) So we went out to discuss it. It was a very beautiful house called Bradley Court with long walks and lawns and so on. And there, as we walked along, I found a peacock's feather. And Mary said, give them that. (laughs) And write a poem about it. So, so I did write the poem, actually, between getting it and going down to dinner. That's the virtue of a good rhyme scheme, make it speed you along. <laughs> anyway, it's called A Peacock's Feather, and it's written in 1972. And it's, uh, I mean, all the trouble is there, and there is England and a beautiful landscape. Anyway, A Peacock's Feather for Daisy Garnet. Six days ago the water fell to christen you, to work its spell and wipe your slate, we hope, for good. But now your life is sleep and food, which with a touch of love suffice you, Daisy, Daisy, English niece, Gloucestershire. Its prospects lie wooded and misty to my eye, whose landscape, as your mother's was, is other than this mellowness of topiary lawn and brick, possessed, untrespassed, walled, nostalgic. I come from scraggy farm and moss, old patchworks that the pitch and toss of history have left dishevelled. But here, for your sake, I have levelled my cart-track voice to garden tones, 
cobbled the bog with Cotswold stones, raveling strands of family's mesh in love knots of two minds, one flesh. The future is not our own. We'll weave an in-law maze. We'll nod and wave with trust but little intimacy. So this is a billet doux to say that in a warm July you lay christened and smiling in Bradley. While I, a guest in your green court, at a west window, sat and wrote self-consciously in gathering dark, I might as well be in cool park. So before I leave your ordered home, let us pray. May tilth and loam, darkened with Celts and Saxons' blood, breastfeed your love of house and wood. For I drop this for you as I pass like the peacock's feather on the grass. It's a, it's a lovely poem, uh, very handy, a bit like Picasso, who can sort of toss off a quick uh, painting to pay for his dinner or whatever, to be able to, to, to write a poem as... as it doesn't as, happen as, that often, though, it, No, and it's, it's a beautiful poem. Um, you've written about the radio in, in one particular poem, A Sofa in the 40s, um, and chugging away. Have you got that one there? Could you read that one? I or? have. It's a long one. Yeah. Oh, good <laughs> Well, the radio appears in this, in the, in the middle. Really, what's behind it is the image of that train coming into Auschwitz. The, the train has a, a, a tragic, doom-laden image of the Second World War, carrying the Jews to extinction. And, uh, you know, at the time, of course, we were listening to the radio, but in innocence, I don't think culpable, but innocence it was, and we were playing trains. So, I mean, 50 years later, you can see that playing trains had some significance. So all that is in the thing. Sofa in the 40s. All of us on the sofa in a line, kneeling behind each other, eldest down to youngest, elbows going like pistons, for this was a train. And between the jam wall and the bedroom door, our speed and distance were inestimable. First we shunted, then we whistled, then somebody collected the invisible for tickets and very gravely punched it as carriage after carriage under us moved faster. The sofa legs went giddy and the unreachable ones far out on the kitchen floor began to wave. Ghost train, death gondola, the carved, curved ends, black leatherette and ornate gauntness of it made it seem the sofa had achieved flotation. Its castors on tiptoe, its braid and fluent backboard gave it airs of superannuated pageantry. When visitors endured it straight-backed, when it stood off in its own remoteness, when the insufficient toys appeared in it on Christmas morning, but held out as itself, potentially heaven-bound, earth-bound for sure, among things that might add up or let you down. We entered history and ignorance under the wireless shelf. UPIA, sang the riders of the range. Here is the news, said the absolute speaker. Between him and us, a great gulf was fixed, 
where pronunciation reigned tyrannically. The aerial wire swept from the treetop down in through a hole bored in the window frame. When it moved in wind, the sway of language and its furtherings swept and swayed in us like nets in water, or the abstract lonely curve of distant trains as we entered history and ignorance. We occupied our seats with all our might, fit for the uncomfortableness. Constancy was its own reward already. Out in front, on the big upholstered arm, somebody craned to the side, driver or fireman, wiping his dry brow with the air of one who had run the gauntlet. We were the last thing on his mind, it seemed. We sensed a tunnel coming up, where we'd pour through like unlit carriages through fields at night, our only job to sit, eyes straight ahead, and be transported and make engine noise. It was a big world was coming through to you on that radio as well. And I know in your speech at the Nobel Prize giving, you mentioned how Stockholm was one of the stations on that radio dial. And of course, you were to discover that big world and you were to discover poets who you would only perhaps have read in translation. Mm-hmm. The, the Polish poets, and particularly Czesław Miłosz, mm-hmm. was one of the, the great ones, the, the Nobel Prize winner. Has that been a, a wonderful discovery for you, particularly all the poems that aren't written in the English language, the wealth of that? Very, very much, yeah. I mean, Swedish poets, I mean... Thomas Tranströmer, who was a wonderful poet, he was here in Dublin a couple of times reading. The Poles, very much. There's something about the Polish situation that mirrors ours in a fairly direct way. I mean, they, they are a nation that's retrieved itself through music and romantic poetry in the 19th century, which led to a kind of unification, restitution of independence, Uh, And then they went through the Second World War, the occupation by the Nazis and so on. So they and also the Czechs, like Miloslav Holub and so on, they they were distrustful of history, I mean, of of their situation. The the poets weren't sure about the society. And, uh, I mean, English poetry has one terrific advantage. It is secure, I think, in its world picture. Maybe less secure than it was, but still it's the centre of itself. And it has Chaucer Shakespeare, you know, right through. And it has the kings and queens and the Church of England and so on and so forth. Uh, we had a very kind of broken tradition and gradually gathered together into the situation we're in now after the Tudor business. So I, I, I found that the... As I say, the slightly ironical attitude of the poets to their condition, to the condition of the people around them, to, the, to society, uh, to, the, to power, to the government, matched uh, something in the situation in Ireland when I was growing up and attaining my majority. <laughs> you know, and so I, I loved that. Of course, the Spanish too. I mean, Lorca, so much early on. I mean, the Spanish used to be the poets who were the fashionable European political poets. And then somehow it was the 
Eastern Europeans began and they, they replaced them in the, yeah. in the Anglophone world a bit. Yeah. The, going back then to the, the bigger world and the smaller world, when you moved out into that bigger world, uh, particularly perhaps when you went to university and, and, and of course beyond, was it hard to keep faith with the world of your parents and yet be true to what you had, had now become? You speak of it in clearances from Hall Lantern um, when you talk about not wanting to be seen to talk down to your mother mm-hmm. and the, you know, the, no, the, no, yeah. the, the, the little censorship that you impose yeah. upon yourself. Would you, would you read that one? Yeah, this is one of a series of sonnets that I wrote after my mother died. Fear of affectation made her affect inadequacy whenever it came to pronouncing words beyond her. Bertolt Breck, she had managed something hampered and askew every time, as if she might betray the hampered and inadequate by too well-adjusted a vocabulary. With more challenge than pride, she'd tell me, you know all them things. So I governed my tongue in front of her, a genuinely well-adjusted, adequate betrayal of what I knew better. I'd know and I, and decently relapse into the wrong grammar, which kept us allied and at bay. <laughs> I mean, that, that catches an intergenerational problem that an awful lot of people have had to mediate, particularly since the number of people who go to university, for instance, has now grown enormously as compared, say, with with 40, 50 years ago. How does one stay true to both of those worlds? Was it a tension for you? It obviously was to stay true to the two worlds. Well, I I think of it as being like ripples. You drop the pebble in into the pool and they start coming out quite naturally. And you look at it from the side and then you're not quite sure whether they're coming out from the centre or going in from the circumference. And I think that's the way one's being is, I mean, that you belong in the two places, uh, at the origin and at the extremities. And uh, you're in negotiation a lot of the time, especially in language, I think, uh, because there's a lingua franca, which we are speaking now, <laughs> an accepted code of discourse. I don't mean accent or anything, it's just exchange. So there's that, and then there's a kind of hearth language, if you like, that people have, or local language. And I think for the writer, to go back to your earlier discussion, you know, the negotiation is between the hearth language, or the whatever, whatever is the first speech, and the written Lingua franca. Um, the bigger world has been good to you, and yet much of your inspiration comes from the smaller world, the world of family and homestead, and you're still writing in your, in your 70s. So have you had to protect that, that small world, which inspires you to, to keep the home and the hearth swept and tended, and to make offerings to the gods so that the muse keeps faith with you? Definitely you have to fight for it. I mean, I didn't need to for a good while, I think. But by <clears throat> the mid-80s, 
I definitely, I was doing a lot of things. I was teaching and moving about and reading and so on. And there were a lot of of demands coming through. Invitations, I shouldn't say, but it turned into demands in a way. I remember saying that our dwelling house had become a kind of combination of travel agency and uh, telephone exchange. So something had to be done. So we were very lucky at that stage. We were living in Dublin to be able to get our hands on that County Wicklow uh, cottage again. And from the moment that was achieved in the late 80s, it has been ruthlessly guarded as a silence den and uh, no entry. (laughs) There used to be in a factory nearby where I grew up, Clark's factory. There was a notice on the door, no entry except on business. (laughs) (laughs) I'm afraid if I were going to put up a notice, it would simply say, no entry. (laughs) Well, Yeats, for instance, was a very determined public poet and and, and public person. Um, And I think you particularly, since the Nobel Prize came, have felt that you perhaps should use that fame in the cause of poetry, and and you do. So many of your public appearances have to do with poetry or, or, or other poets. But how do you balance the, the public role and the private vocation because there must be times where this public role that you play and you play so generously is taking you away from the poetry. Well, it's a tight rope, definitely. Do you write no on the phone? <laughs> Say no. Say no, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm told that. I'm told that by people who then ask me to do something. <laughs> <laughs> you know... You're doing far too much. Would you would you come to us, you know? <laughs> well, it's true. <laughs> I'm conscious to, that today's Joyce's birthday, and he wasn't properly recognised in his lifetime. You have been. Would life have been very hard without that recognition? I don't think it would have been very hard. I mean, I never expected to be... A writer, really. It all—it came over me in my early twenties, and uh, it was well received, as you say. But uh, I think I could have proceeded into the teacher training college and proceeded all, all quieter life, maybe. But I'm not complaining about the life I ended up with. But you—you you think you would have equally enjoyed a, a quiet life as a teacher? I think so. Yeah. I don't know. It's an impossible question. Yeah. (laughs) It's a good one, though. (laughs) But is there anything new? This is an awful question. I hate when anybody says this to me, so why should I be asking you when people say, what what new are you? What's what's new that you're doing? Are you doing anything new? Well, I'm, I'm actually in a little boat of translation. There's an Italian poet who I came upon and I did a little poem of his in the most recent book. And there's now a, a conference on him going on in April in Bologna. So the organizers wrote to me and said, would I like to come? So I said, I better get to know this guy if I'm going to go. So that's, that's what I'm doing at the minute. And uh, waiting for the spark from heaven. 
which will doubtless come. Can we finish just on a question about radio? I, I love radio. I love its intimacy. I love the span of imagination which it allows because you don't have the tyranny of pictures either when you're working on radio or when you're listening to the radio. Do you enjoy the radio? Very much. It's, it's the thing to do. You were asking about reading my, my own reading of poetry. What I enjoyed better was uh, a production of uh, a play, a Sophocles version that I did that uh, Kevin Reynolds produced and uh, Patrick Mason uh, directed and terrific cast. So, so that, was, that was your words, but it was dramatised and good. I also like radio talks, as it were. You know all about them yourself. And I was wondering also, when we were talking about the obscurity in poetry or difficulty, I mean, modern music has its own resistors too, but the radio serves it very well, I think. And poetry has been well served by RTE uh, over the years. I mean, the we don't need to go back to Austin Clark for it because we, we had border our poetry programs with Pat Boren recently and I think Theo Dorgan and uh, maybe Peter Sir at some point too. So it's it's all go. And and they tell me that they're bringing back the poetry program in the summertime, good which job. is is yeah. good. And I know Pat Kenny does poetry That's spots right. every so often. Personally, I'd love to see much more poetry yeah. on the radio. It seems to yeah. be made for it. But it I'm is sure made for it, yeah. It is made for it. Seamus, I know we've worked your heart in terms of reading poems this evening, but would you mind ending uh, this evening uh, with a poem, with a, a radio reference, and maybe you'll explain it to us. Yeah, well, when we lived in Wicklow, it was the first time <clears throat> I lived near the sea, and the first time I realised fully that the shipping forecast wasn't just a, a sprung rhythm poem but but uh, actually was meant business for the, for the trawlers and so on and you used to see the trawlers in the bay in, in Wicklow morning after a storm so uh, this poem was written at that time this is a BBC I'm afraid that's allowed I see the eyes of RTE on me up here. (laughs) Dogger, Rockall, Malin, Irish Sea. Green swift upsurges. North Atlantic flux conjured by that strong gale-warning voice collapse into a sibilant penumbra. Midnight and close down. Sirens of the tundra of Eel Road, Seal Road, Keel Road, Whale Road, raise their wind-compounded keen behind the bays and drive the trawlers to the lee of Wicklow. L'Etoile, Le Guillemot, La Belle Hélène nursed their bright names this morning in the bay that toiled like mortar. It was marvellous and actual. I said out loud, a haven. The word deepening, clearing, like the sky elsewhere on Minch's, Cromarty, the Pharaohs. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Now, Seamus has agreed to take a few questions, so if you'd like to ask a question, we have a roving mic here. Yeah. Oh, hello. My name is Joanne Kinsler. 
What I'm curious about listening to this conversation this evening is not about poetry, but you as a person. If I was to say to you, you can't think about poetry, and I'm going to put you someplace for a month, would you be a different person? Or If I put you in the Amazon, if I put you on Mars, will the poetry... Will it automatically, or can you separate from it? I'm trying to imagine you without poetry, and I can't. So could you be that other person? Uh, well, I, I can, I'm without poetry quite a lot of the time. But I would say that the sense of self and the sense of worth and the sense of continuity and point in life depends on getting a few verses written every now and again. So, Mars, whatever, <laughs> probably write about the canals. <laughs> Your poetry is, perhaps could be described as um, a voice of freedom, especially when a nation is oppressed. A number of nations are now going back into a cycle of oppression with economic depression. How do you see your poetry acting in that kind of uh, environment? I don't think it needs to change. I mean, poetry isn't, a res- isn't necessarily a response to the present conditions. It's a symbolic utterance of sorts. And the creativity of it is the main thing. And the pleasure, energy, uh, illumination, conviction that can come from reading a a work that is entirely pleasing to you. I mean, that fortifies the spirit, I think. You're right about uh, in certain conditions, poets are, they call upon themselves to take on the the situation. I mean, I, I always think of black poets in America in the 1960s. They had to, to change their first person, from the first person singular, I, to the first person plural, we, the black community, striving for civil rights and so on. But, uh, I mean, it was detrimental to a lot of writers. To their, They began to write a kind of rhetoric, but it was also probably almost impossible for them to resist the cry for solidarity. Polish poet Adam Zagievski who wrote a book recently called Solidarity and Solitude. And they are, you know, if not quite opposite, certainly standing apart from each other. All politics requires solidarity. Sinking of yourself into the party. All politics is, (gasps) better not. We'll take one more question. Yes. Hi, um, my name is Charles Marshall. Uh, As a musician... I was interested in asking, um, what is it inside you that tells you that a poem is complete, that you're finished with it? I'm just wondering if there is something inside you or some particular sensation or feeling that tells you that. That's a magnificent question. There's a friend of mine who wanted to do a, a thesis on that question, and he had to give up because he said he could find no documentation. So, I suppose if you're doing a sonnet when you come to the end of the 14th line. (laughs) 
But um, I thought it mightn't be finished. You might have ended it, but it mightn't be finished at the 14th line. But are there times with the poem where you come to the end of it, you say, I've done as much as I can with this, and it ain't good enough, and it goes in the bottom drawer? I have a good few of those, yeah. 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 And do they ever get produced later on and maybe recycled? Sometimes, sometimes, but not not much. On the whole, it's what happens first. (laughs) What I have also is a a huge heap of early poems that must never be seen. (laughs) (laughs) Burn them now, Seamus, burn them now. That's what have to be done, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd just like to thank our audience this evening, thank the Royal Irish Academy for setting up uh, this conversation, but most of all to thank Seamus Heaney for being here. Thank you.